0: Philippians 1, we're gonna read a few verses, 27, 28, 29, and 30. And Paul here turns a critical corner in the flow of this letter. He he takes his own affairs and drops them from view, and he begins to shine the spotlight directly on the Philippians and what they need to embody. And so he's he's really gonna to begin to attack and to address the church and its affairs directly. And the the autobiographical nature where Paul's kind of talking about his own trials, his own tribulations, and what he's thinking, that kind of fades away into the background. And now he begins to address the church head on. So Paul has just said, look, I may be released from prison, I may not be released from prison, I may be exonerated, I may be executed, but regardless... For me to live as Christ, for me to die is gain. I'm a happy camper either way, but I want to stay around for your own benefit, church. And then he switches gears in verse 27 and says this, focusing on them singularly now. He says, "...only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it's given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. I'm excited to hone in just specifically on verse number 27 this morning. If there was one verse in all of the book of Philippians that grabbed my attention And made me want to preach through the Book of Philippians with our church family. It's verse number 27, and it's such I feel a a timely word for us. And I love what it has to offer. And I want us to consider it this morning. I don't know about you, but I remember the times in elementary school when the teacher left the room. Remember that you were under her thumb or his thumb all day long, and then they left for this 10-minute errand, and chaos broke out. You know, it was a celebration. I remember in high school and college, uh, times where teachers didn't show up for class, and that was, that was a thrilling moment when you realize they're not coming, and we're going to be left to our own idiocy, and we're just going to wreak havoc, we're going to you know, waste time. You, you never do homework in those moments. You have a celebration, and you make up your own party. I, can't, I can even remember uh, my parents at times leaving. And those of you that are parents, you know what this is like, to go out on a date or to leave for a day or something, and to leave your children with a babysitter, and the talk that you have to them, that you would want them to behave in a certain way. And, and of course, it never works. You come home, and, and you ask the babysitter, how were they? And they just kind of look at you like, your children are the devil when you're not here. I, I remember even uh, personally, I was very young. I was not even elementary, kindergarten age. But my older brothers were kind of the, the, the real push behind this. We had a babysitter and we handcuffed her to our bathroom doorknob. <laughs> why, why we had real handcuffs in the house, I do not know. And why our babysitter allowed us to put them on her, I do not know. But she did. I can't even remember when, as we got older that mom and dad would leave and they would say, you know, you're in charge of watching your younger siblings which there's actually a Bible verse about that. Children left to, them sh- to themselves bring their mothers to shame. Like that's literally in the Bible. And of course it happens. We, you know, I remember on one occasion we, we locked my youngest brother out of the house. Why? I don't know. We just thought it would be fun to throw him outside and to lock him out and just say, you know, stay out there till mom comes home. He probably did something to make us mad. And, uh, and my mother pulled up. We had a kind of a You pulled up the drive, and the garage entrance was on the side, so you really couldn't see a car coming. But you went through the garage, and there was an entrance into the house. And my mother pulled into the garage, and there was my youngest brother outside of the door with a baseball bat, beating on the door and screaming, let me in! And uh, it was good times. He was never never the same after that. And uh, I think, I mentioned that for this reason, I think Paul... Has a little bit of kind of like parent-teacher apprehension here, that he's not with the Philippian church. He says right in the middle of verse number 27, he says, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. He says, Look, whether I'm with you or not, let me give you a little lecture here, church, whether, whether I, your kind of leader in the moment, whether I'm with you or not with you, whether I'm in the room or not in the room, whether I'm in Philippi or not in Philippi, look, let, let me give you some advice. I I want you to do some things. As as I leave, I may get out of prison. I may get to see you again. I may be executed. I don't know what's going to happen. But look, I'm not always going to be around. I'm not going to be in the room. You're not going to be under my thumb all the time. So I want you to embody something. I want you—really, he's going to call them to unity. He's going to call them to a lifestyle that reflects the gospel. He's going to call them to gospel-mindedness. In this— This one verse, verse 27, is going to control the text really all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 18. You're going to get halfway through chapter 2 before he's done unpacking these thoughts of verse 27 of what he wants them to do in his absence, and really you could summarize all of it with the phrase that he leads with in verse number 27. He says, "'Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ.'" It's a little bit of a tricky phrase because the way that we use conversation nowadays is different than how it's being used here. We use conversation strictly in a manner of our words. We're talking to somebody. And that's part of what Paul's saying, but that's definitely not all of what Paul's saying. Conversation in this context really is your manner of life. It's your conduct. It's your lifestyle that Paul is saying, I want to hear that your lifestyle is becoming of the gospel. I want to hear that your conduct matches your message I want to hear that you are living in such a way that it would reflect Jesus, it would reflect his good news, that what you do on a day-to-day basis would line up with the gospel that you've received and that you've believed in. And this word conversation is actually interesting. It, It literally would mean to behave yourself as a citizen of a polis, which is where we get our word political from. Paul is, he's drawing on the term citizenship here. He's really saying let your citizenship be that which is the gospel of Christ. And he's using this term for a reason. It's going to leap off the page and grab the attention of the Philippian people. Because if you remember our intro to Philippians, Philippi was a colony of Rome. So it's far away from Rome, but it's actually an outpost, a colony of Rome. And those that were Philippians had Roman citizenship. That had a plethora of benefits. Probably the the biggest one was that they never had to pay taxes ever. You had a lot of personal benefit if you were a citizen of the Roman Empire. You're not a Jew that's under oppression that has to pay taxes all the time to the tax collectors. You get to reap the benefits of those taxes. You get to be a citizen. You get to live in light of that citizenship. And colonies were very protective of that. There was extreme pride in being a citizen of Rome and, and I would even say almost in a similar way most Americans have an extreme pride of being American most Amer, not all but most are extremely thankful for their country and, ha- and have a lot of pride in the flag and the anthem so we can kind of relate with this a little bit there was a lot of pride to be a, a citizen in a colony of Rome and in those that were citizens lived with the good of the state with the good of the empire in mind that what I do, what I say, how I act, my business, all of that is meant to have this overarching principle that I want the good of the state to be propelled. I want to live in such a way, I want to hone my gifts, my abilities, my talents, I want to hone those so that the state can benefit, so that I can, I can live with the values of the state in mind, I can live with uh, the, the expressions of the state, I can... I want this culture of Rome to go forward. So those that were Philippians knew this. They got this. They got what it meant to be a citizen of somewhere. And Paul is calling them really to move their citizenship from Rome to the gospel of Jesus. He's trying to tell them, you you now have a heavenly citizenship. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now live out of that. Don't live strictly for the benefit of the empire. Don't live strictly for the benefit of yourself or of your colony or of Rome. Now I want you to be part of a new community in Jesus. Live like that. You could say it this way Is what they were living for, is what you are living for, is what I'm living for, worthy of Christ dying for? Do those match? Does my life and what I'm doing in my life and what flows out of my life, is that synonymous with the gospel of Jesus? Do those two go together? Am I taking my cues from the gospel or am I taking my cues from culture? Am I taking my cues from the good news of Jesus Christ or am I taking my cues from traditions or what someone thinks I should do or what what my business friend says that I should do? Where are you living out of? What is, is your motivation what is really guiding and shaping the direction of your life? And so this, this has deep ethical content. Uh, there are some implications here that are, that are vast and broad. This one phrase means literally everything's on the table. If you have a conversation or a lifestyle or conduct or a citizenship that is informed by the gospel of Jesus, what Paul is calling them to do here is to say, look, everything that's in my life is on the table, and I'm going to evaluate it all, and I'm going to see if that matches up with Jesus or does not match up with Jesus. What this means is that the gospel begins to attack your day-to-day life, which is kind of tough for us. It's almost a little bit mean, it feels like. Not just, okay, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, check, and I go to church every once in a while, and I try to, you know, be a good person when I'm around other Christians, check. But no, everything is what I do on a day-to-day basis lining up with Jesus. Is what I watch on TV lining up with Jesus? Is what I listen to on Pandora or on the radio lining up with Jesus? Is the concert that I just went to lining up with Jesus? Is what I'm wearing lining up with Jesus? Is what I'm posting on social media or liking on social media lining up with Jesus? All of it. Is my day-to-day, are my actions, are my words, are my attitudes when trials or troubles come my way or when someone steps on me or belittles me, what's the attitude that flows out of me? Does that line up with the gospel message? This is what Paul is saying. My big goal is that whether I'm with you or not, absent or present, I want to hear that you are living in light of the gospel and that what you are doing and saying and living for is coming out of that. It's reflective of Jesus. Whatever happens, I want your conduct to be worthy. I want your conduct to match your message. I've had people ask me this Pastor, is the Christian life about being or doing? And the answer is both. It's about who you are, it transforms you on the inside. It should work in you if you've believed in Jesus and, and you know his message, but it also begins to manifest itself on the outside. It has to. It starts to change behavior and help you see that things that I was okay with or were normative to me before Christ or were normative to me when I was backslidden. Maybe I did know Jesus, but I wasn't living for him. That these, the intricacies of my life begin to change and shift and alter and begin to, it begins to work itself out in a really practical, pragmatic way. You can say it this way. The church can't live beneath its theology. It's one thing to know Jesus to believe in him and to have your get out of hell free card. It's a whole nother thing to say that my life and what I'm going to do on a day-to-day basis is going to match that theology and those are going to line up with each other. It's been said that the church should live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back this afternoon. And that's true. What we're doing, saying, being, how we act, how we conduct ourselves, our citizenship should be in Jesus, and we should live out of that. And the early church got this. I don't know how well the modern church gets this, but the early church definitely did. You have a lot of letters, and the biggest thing that the early church had to offer, they had no political power, they had no financial power, they had nothing to offer other than their testimonies the words that they would use to tell people about the good news of Jesus, but the lives that they lived in front of people. If you read church history at all in the first three centuries, you will find story after story after story. History is just replete with people and stories that they they lived it out. Like it affected what they did on a day-to-day basis. There's, There's one I'll share with you. There was a philosopher named Athenoragus. And he pleaded with Emperors Marcus and Lucius to stop their policies of persecuting Christians. And this was late second century, about 179 AD or so. And he wrote a letter to the emperors. And this this was his testimony. There's a very memorable kind of stanza in his letter. And he says about Christian people, to the emperors, please stop killing us. Here's why I think you should stop killing us. He says, with us, On the contrary, you will find unlettered people, basically people who don't know how to read and write, tradesmen, old women, who, though unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, we demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. We do not rehearse speeches, but we evidence good deeds. When struck, we do not strike back. When robbed, we do not sue. To those who ask, we give, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. That was his testimony. You know what his testimony was? We live different. Look at our lives. We, we not be able to, to, to give you some speech and be verbose on why, why you should believe this and why you should stop this. But all I can offer you is look at us. See what we do. See how we act. See how we conduct ourselves. See what we say. See what moves us. You'll find something altogether different and we think it will be appealing to you and you should stop killing us because of it. That's what he's saying. And we have to ask ourselves the the tough question, is that anywhere close to my life? Is it anywhere close to my family's life? Is it close to the life of our church? Do we conduct ourselves, operate our day-to-day living out of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's been said that the best argument for Christianity is the best argument against Christianity, and it's the life of a Christian. It's one or the other. People look at you and how, how you live and, and sharing the gospel is much more than just life. There is a message to, to tell as well. But people look at how you live, and they either say, I don't buy it. They're just like me. They do what I, they do, what I do. They say what I say. They go where I go. They watch what I watch. I don't, it's, they laugh at the same filthy jokes, and everything's just like me. Why would I want that? Or there's something different that would compel people to say, look at my life. Look at even how I used to live, and it's changed me. Something's working in me. There, there's a life that's being evidenced. I'm not just a witness. I'm part of the evidence. This is Paul encouraging this church to say, you know what? We are going to live a life that's worthy of Jesus, and that's the way it's supposed to be. The gospel is supposed to inform our day-to-day living. It's much deeper than just some cognitive exercise and some mental ascension to, oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. I believe that. Now let me get on with my life. It's much more than that. It's supposed to take root. It's supposed to attack your motives and your attitudes and what you do or what you don't do. You're supposed to live out of that. And this, and what's beautiful about it is it actually is practical. There's, there's real-life implications here that are beautiful for you to live out of. Like, it's not just a, hey, you should do this, but it's an impossibility. Like, there's actually something substantive there that you can latch on to. If you're struggling with forgiveness, you look at the forgiveness of Jesus. To summarize his parable, he says, you were forgiven this much. How can you not forgive somebody this much? Right? You look and see that my sins put him on the cross. He forgave me of all that I've done. How could I not let somebody else off the hook? You're grieving the loss of a loved one. There are several right now in our church this month who who have lost loved ones. What do you do with that? You take it to the Lord. You know that he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But he did lose a friend. He lost Lazarus and he wept. His own mother mourned at, at his death on the cross. And there is, there's help there. There's something that you can run to there. Wrestling with sin in your life, you run to Jesus. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So it makes sense that he would be the one that could tell us and help us overcome and get through that. You're struggling with how to be a good husband or a good wife? You look at Christ. He loves the church and he gives himself for it and and he operates with our good and our benefit on our behalf. You're prideful, arrogant, self absorbed. Just look at Jesus for a little bit, look at the gospel. I guarantee you what will happen is he'll become a little bit more beautiful and you'll be a little less beautiful. Right? I hope you caught what the choir sang this morning. They just magnified and glorified and exalted. I don't know why it's doing that. Just put up with it. They just exalted. Holy is he. I hope that God went about like that and was magnified to you and that you started to shrink a little bit as they were singing that. If you're out in the lobby talking and stuff, sorry, you missed it. You should have been in here. Get in here. You get that? You look at the gospel and all of a sudden you're not so great anymore. He died for you. Your sins put him on the cross. And all of a sudden your pride starts to get squashed a little bit and you get stepped on a little bit. And the opposite of that is true as well. You have self-condemning spirit. You, you uh, struggle with, with depression and woe is me and who am I. You look at the cross and you find out that you're valuable and you're loved. He did die for you. He loved you. And he gave himself for you. And you find that there's something worthwhile inside of you that you were worthy enough that he did die you feel bottled up inside need to express yourself searching for some cathartic experience with some counselor or with someone else to to talk everything out you know what run to jesus Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. You can enter boldly into the throne room of grace. You can tell him your needs. You can find what you need there. I could go on and on and on and on and on. The gospel is supposed to attack real life. It's supposed to change who you are and how you act and the things that you struggle with. It's, It's way more than just eternity in view. It's supposed to move in and help you live day to day. You say, Pastor, I feel like I'm so far from that. Me too. Real life, me too. It does not take me very long to start to inventory my life and to find things that are inconsistent with the gospel message. To find things that stand out as glaringly obvious that that doesn't match the good news of Jesus that he gave himself for me and he was buried and he rose again and he gives me life. It's It's real easy to find that. But, and I would imagine the same is true for you, right? To look and to find that, man, this is, it's right there in my face. That took me two seconds. But we don't shrug it off and say, you know what? This side of glory, I'm never going to be perfect. Oh, well, I'll be released from the presence of sin one day. I'll just continue on. No. That's not the answer. The answer is to look at it and to, and to lay it down. To repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I'm doing this. This doesn't match. This, this doesn't work. This, this doesn't, it's not synonymous with you and what you've done for me and your good news. So I lay it down and I ask you help me. I want to walk away from it. I want my life to line up with you. I want to be a better witness for you. I want to, I want to embody the gospel. I want to live out of that context. Maybe even you find someone else and you find an accountability partner inside of the church. And you say, help me. Text me every day. Text me once a week. Ask me how I'm doing with this. But 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 you have, to, you have to look at it. You, you have to square up to it and say, you know what? Do I actually match the gospel or not? And this is what Paul is calling this church. A good church, by the way. A great church. You're hard-pressed to find a better church in all of Scripture than the Philippian church. And Paul says, look, I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned that I'm not going to be with you, that I'm, uh, I'm going to be executed or I'm going to be released, or I'm going to be somewhere else, I'm going to be absent from you, and I, wa- I want to make sure that you that you live in a worthy way. I want to make sure that your conversation is becoming of the gospel of Jesus. You say, okay, pastor, how might I live worthy of the gospel? I'm glad you asked. I think he spells it out for us in the end of verse number 27. I'll give you three words, and I won't be long on them because I know how long I've taken already. Two Two of the words he gives to us, they're verbs that he uses at the end of verse 27. Let's read the verse. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you what? That ye stand fast in one spirit. That's the first verb, stand fast. With one mind striving together, that's the second verb, for the faith of the gospel. So how do you do this? You stand. Paul says, I want to hear that you stand fast. This literally means to be at a post in war. That you are, that you are on guard. That you are that you're resolute, that your feet are nailed to the gospel message and I'm going to stand right there and I'm not going to be moved away from it. I'm going to be right there. If you've ever seen the Queen's Guard at Buckingham Palace, you get this, right? The big furry hats and the red coats and they, they stand there and you can blow in their ears or wave at them or do whatever you want to and they won't move, right? You get what it means to stand fast then, to be there and and to not be moved. And Paul is saying no matter what befalls you, no matter what wind of persecution comes your way, no matter how the devil begins to attack you, no matter what happens physically or emotionally or financially, no matter what happens, stand there, don't move, be secure in the gospel of Jesus, be rooted and grounded and built up in that, and don't be moved away from that, stand fast in that. This is what Paul told the Colossian church in Colossians two. Just a few weeks ago, we covered this passage. He says to the Colossians, "Though I be absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, joining and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ." If you ever played Red Rover as a kid, you got it. Who played Red Rover as a kid? Right? You joined. On, some of you are like Red. Who? What are you talking about? Red Rover, you join arms with your buddies, you get the, you know, the enemies on the other side, and you, what do you do? You hold on to their hands, and you, you hold on. You stand fast as that little third grader, right? Red Rover, Red Rover, we call, and you pick, you know, the smallest person first, and if you got picked first, I'm sorry, you were a peon, you were little. We dare Carolyn over. And they rev up their engines and they run as fast as they can. And they're looking for the weakest link to try to plow through so they can stand the game. But you do your best and you stand fast. That's what Paul's saying here. I don't know if they played Red Rover in the first century or not. but, But that's kind of the imagery. Stand there. Hold on. Don't be moved away from this. But then he says strive. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is where we get our, our word athletics from, it's Suna Athleo. He's, he's going from imagery from the military over to athletics, which, which they had in the first century. He's saying you're striving together, you're part of the team, you're struggling along with someone, you're you're, you're joining arms together and you're moving forward as a team and as a unit and there's a common cause uniting and banding and causing you not to strive with one another and lock horns with each other, but to strive together in the same direction, all pulling the same way. If you played sports for any length of time, you get this. You know what it's like. I don't know if it was your little peewee league or if it was middle school or JV or varsity or college. But if you played sports for any length of time, you know what it's like to have like this rogue agent on your team. That everyone has the cause. Everyone has the common goal. Everyone's out for the benefit of the team. But there's this one person, typically it's the person with the most skill, that's a little diva and everything wants to go around them. I didn't get the ball enough, I didn't get my touches, I didn't get enough shots off, I didn't get enough shots on goal, whatever it may have been. They don't wanna practice as hard, they don't wanna show up to practice, they wanna be the exception to every single rule because it revolves around them. And what happens in that scenario? It's to the detriment of the team. The team is worse off, even if the person has a great set of skills, the team is worse off because they can't get to a point where they say, you know what, I'm going to give of myself a little bit for the betterment of the team so that we can pull together and accomplish something as as a collective unit. Paul is saying here the church should strive together. There should be a holy alliance. There should be something that bands us and unites us, that we're different and we have different skill sets and different abilities and different personalities and we even bug each other sometimes, but it doesn't matter. There's a singular goal that we're fixated on that I want to move forward to and you want to move forward to. Have you experienced the work of the Spirit in your heart? Yes, so have I. We have a common denominator, so let's move forward together. Paul is calling this church to say, hey, you want to live worthy of the gospel? Let me tell you how. Stand on the gospel. Work together in the gospel. Move forward in the gospel. And I would say, lastly, just share in it. Stand, strive, share. He uses these descriptors for his verbs in verse number 27. He says that you stand fast in one spirit. There, there's, there's a common heartbeat, there's something that's unifying. There's this big picture spirit that everyone is embodying, that we all, we get the mission, we get the goal, we're doing this together. We have one spirit. He then goes on to say, with one mind striving together, our psyche, our passions, our desires. There's a collective bunch of people who say, we want this to all move forward. We want to be united on this and unified in this. You say, what is this? Great question, because this is far beyond just be unified. Paul doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say stand and strive and be unified and pick something. It's not just find a philanthropic cause that makes you feel good and be united on that and pull together on that. Find, you know, just invent something and be unified on that. He gives us not just be unified, but what should be the unifier it's the end of verse 27. We stand, we strive, why? For the faith of the gospel. That is meant to be the unifier. Once again, I'm sorry, I don't know why it's doing that. That's meant to be, it's probably a devil or something. That's meant to be what, what links us. That's meant to kind of melt away all of the petty differences that we have. And to say, you know what, I don't, I don't appreciate that, and I don't like that, and that does bug me, and you get on my nerves, or whatever the case may be. But there's, there's a big goal here, and I know you want that goal, and I know I want that goal, so we're together. So we're unified, so we're pulling, we're pulling in the same direction. I would put it this way. The gospel is the center of gravity for your own personal behavior and for the goal of the church. That's what it's all about everything filters through that. Everything revolves around that. Everything is birthed out of that. It's not an agenda. It's not a calendar event. It's not a building project. It's not even debt reduction. I love debt reduction. I'll I'll be thankful for the day where we burn the note on this place and and we talk about it uh, just a little bit here this morning. But that's not so we can store up a giant war chest and have stockpiles of money so that we can just, you know, have more money laying around. That's for the gospel. That's so that we can have an extra $29,000 a month to see the gospel go further faster and reach people and evangelize people and invest in more missionaries and to see something happen, not just because we want to be at, at a good spot financially. Paul's saying this is what unifies. And, and if you probably have been a part of a church previously where well, maybe this was not the case, where you saw the church, over the course of time, begin to lose its focus and begin to shift its emphasis away from the gospel and away from evangelism. And what happens is everyone starts to have their own agenda. Everyone starts to have what they think is best, what I, I want to be really focused on this. And the church starts to turn inward and be myopic and eat itself up. And Paul is trying to get them to stay where they've been and say, look at the gospel, stay there, stand there, strive there, let that unify you. They say that when a church is born, a new church plant, which we've been a part of, coincidentally there's a church that we helped plant six years ago, Lifeway out in Cranberry, and they have their sixth anniversary today and they just got a new uh, building that they're going to start meeting in that they've started leasing, which is a really Which is really cool. I I texted Pastor Snowd yesterday and said, "Man, praying for the service. You know, it's going to be awesome." And he said, "There would be no Lifeway if there was no harvest." I said, "I'm glad there's both." But they say when a church is conceived in its inception, that it takes one person to reach one person. People are excited. People are they're energetic. And the and the young church with 40 people or 50 people or 100 people has nothing to offer. There's no grandchildren's program. There's no playground. <laughs> there's, no, there's not great singing. All they have is the gospel. And the, and the young church realizes that. And they say, let's take this gospel and let's reach other people. And you know what? Every person starts to reach every person. And typically in a young church, it begins to grow exponentially year by year by year. But as, as time goes on, they say that when a church reaches three years old, it takes three people to reach one person. The church starts to focus a little bit more inward and look at the programs, and look at what's for me, and look what's offering my family. And now instead of one-to-one, it's three-to-one. By the time the church reaches 10 years old, it's eight-to-one. It takes eight people to reach one more person. They say if that continues, and something doesn't stop it, and and someone doesn't preach Philippians 127, that if that continues, by the time the church reaches 50 years old, it's 89-to-one. How they came up with 89-to-one, I have no idea, but it's staggering. Maybe you've even been a part of a church like that that was forever old and there were a few people that were just happy and no one came and no one got saved and no one got baptized and no life was changed. Why? Because all of a sudden the church gets preoccupied with pastoral care, with budget, with internal systems and it it begins to be almost as cancer that begins to eat at and erode at the church and all of a sudden everyone's self-concerned, everyone's narcissistic, everyone's looking inward to try to service and and help each other. And no longer is there unity. No longer is there a common enemy and a common goal. Evangelism is now relegated to the side. It's not present in the front. And now all of a sudden things begin to dissipate and it begins to unravel. And I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, knew this. And he said, look, this isn't complicated, people. I want to hear that your life matches the gospel. And I want to hear that you stand on that gospel, you nail your feet to it, and you strive together in that, and you let that unify you, and you move together for the gospel. Don't stop confronting the world, because when you do, you're going to shrivel. And I, I dare say that this is perhaps a timely word for our church. I love our church to death. I love where we're at. I love that there's this many people here. I love there was a group of people in the first service. I love that we've grown. I love the facilities that we have. I love that we were able to put out a playground for for the kids last fall, and and they're able to go play on that. And we actually dedicated that this last week. You may have seen an article in the newspaper about it. I, I love all that. But that's not what it's all about. That's not what unifies us. That's not what motivates us. This is not what it should be. That's not what we're called to, to be about building programs or things for ourselves or to try to make it the best for, you know, the, the 500 people that are in this room right now. That's not what it's about. It's about what we've said really from the beginning of the year, that this year we want to be sure that our focus is let's get the lost to the message and let's get the message to the lost. Let's evangelize. Let's share. Let's make that our burden, our heartbeat, our passion, because that's what it should be. Not because we want to invent something and find a unifier, because that's biblically what it should be to be motivated and right there on the gospel. And and I, honestly, I've been chewing on, on this verse for months now, and I've just been so compelled by it. Some of you even remember when I candidated back of whatever, almost two years ago now, and it was from this verse primarily. That hasn't changed. If anything, that fire has grown in me that this should be us. I believe that it is us to a degree, but we have, we have some room for growth. To say this is what we want. Lives that match the gospel. We stand there. We pull together in that. We work as a team to, to reach people for Jesus. To share his good news with ourselves, with our own hearts. To allow it to change us and conform us into the image of Christ, but to share it with other people because it is good news. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have never... No one's ever given you the good news of Jesus. Odds are what I just said made no sense if you've never believed in that. But I'd love for you to believe in that. Best news you ever get in all the world is Christ loved you and he died for you for your sins and he offers you forgiveness and he offers you life. He even offers you a home in heaven, not because of what you've done, but strictly and utterly by his grace his loving, free gift to you that you through faith can turn to him and you can accept. And I hope that that is what has gripped our hearts and moves us each and every day through life. I want this for us. I want this for our church to stand, to strive, to share all for the good news in the glorious name of Jesus. And I hope that it is.